0: This podcast contains details about sexual abuse and murder. Listener discretion is advised.
1: In the last episode, we found out that Jack Walls will spend the rest of his days behind bars. We also learned how he was able to continue to torment his victims from prison, resulting in the death of Wade Knox. In this episode, we'll talk about how Heath had to adapt to prison
0: life and all that comes with it. Before we get started, we wanted to clarify something mentioned in a previous episode. It had been implied that Jack's group was called the Order of the Arrow. The Order of the Arrow is an actual group within the Boy Scouts, and Jack's group of boys was referred to as the group. We will be hearing from Matt Carter, Lance Womack, Heath, his Aunt Janice, as well as Doug Hogan. Doug was the subject of Episode 4, The Boy Who Said No, And he had come forward to report Jack's attempted abuse in 1993, which resulted in his family being ostracized by the town. I initially reached out to Doug when we started this podcast, and we were able to connect recently and ended up talking for hours. His story and insight was very appreciated, and we will be sharing more of it in future episodes, as well as additional bonus episodes. So to start, can you tell me your name and where you're from?
2: Douglas Hogan from Carlisle, Arkansas. I lived in Carlisle from the the time I was born until I got married.
0: What was your family like growing up? Typical American
2: family. I know that there's no such thing as the typical American family, but to me, it was typical to what I thought the American family should be.
0: So you were in Scouts then?
2: Yes, I started in Cub Scouts. My dad was... Uh, active in Cub Scouts. And when I moved up to Boy Scouts, he, I don't think he started off as my Scoutmaster, but he eventually became my Scoutmaster.
0: And what troop were you in?
2: 101, Carlisle.
0: So how long were you in Scouts? Did you go all the way and get your Eagle Scout?
2: I went on to get my Eagle Scout and I believe two palms after Eagle.
0: So in the last episode, when we had talked about how everything went down with Jack and Heath and Wade, you have to stop for a minute and think, what about all the people that didn't know about this? And they're just finding out. Jack's been charged with all these counts of rape. Someone they never suspected is now in prison for molesting and raping multiple boys. So their reactions had to be just astonished you have so many people who were involved in heath's case
1: and throughout all of that they're wondering why did this happen why was this family murdered why was their son involved in their murders and it was just a big unanswered question and i think that when some of this stuff came to light about jack some light bulbs went off Right away, I think people are connecting the dots and starting to put those pieces together
0: as far as how some of this came to be. That had to be so shocking because if you are Mac or Lance and you're working on this case and you're talking to family and people in the town and everyone's like, I don't know what's going on, and then you find this out, I can't even imagine the level of frustration that those two felt alone. Both of them,
1: in their interviews, talked about how they were searching for mitigating circumstances, something that could explain why this happened. And they were definitely frustrated to find out that this was right under their noses and that so many people could have given them the information.
0: So what was your reaction when Jack was charged? We found out he was charged with multiple
3: rapes. I was shocked. I remember being just totally shocked when we found that out how long did that occur after the plea um,
0: i think it was a matter of months
3: yeah it, it was shock i was shocked and initially in my first i went to my boss the executive director public defender commission at the time dd Sallies, and i was like we should withdraw the plea i want to withdraw that plea of guilty on all three counts set it for trial and work the case, trying to get something better than what he got, but she, she wouldn't authorize under the statute the creation, we were not authorized to get into a post-conviction action. We only were trial you know, lawyers bound by the statute. We weren't covered or authorized within that office to handle post-conviction cases. Basically what she had told me, and Dee, Dee had a lot of death penalty experience at the time, and that what this is is good mitigation had you gone to trial. And I agreed with her, and I said, but well, it seems to be more than that. But we were not in the position in that office, and nor was I authorized by my supervisor, to try to withdraw those pleas of guilty. What she said about that being good mitigation, that's true as well. but. Yeah, you look back on something, you can't say what would have happened, what if, but had I known this before while I was representing him, I know I would have tried to use it for leverage, but it's, it's hard to speculate on something like that, going back in time, what would I have done then or that, but I was blown away, shocked and mad at Heath <laughs> and for not telling me and the whole family.
0: I'm sure it was also frustrating for Mac then to go to his boss and ask her. But he wanted to reopen this case. He wanted to do something about it now that this other information is out there. And now he has the answers that he had been looking for. I can't imagine what that must have been like to have that at your fingertips and be told no. I'm sure that they were both feeling like they were just kept in the dark and probably wondering why.
1: Why was this kept from them? And they always say hindsight is twenty They're probably looking back and thinking how different everything would have turned out had they known, had they been given that information.
0: I think a lot of Lance's interview really shows that too, how frustrated he was with the family because there was so much held back from them. And had they just been told this could have gone so differently. And I understand that It was outside of what Mac and the lawyers that he worked with did, but to have worked on something that important and that confusing to not know and then to be told, no, you you can't open it again because of legal reasons. It wasn't in his authority to open it again. So they just had to accept it. It had to have been so frustrating. What was your reaction when you found out that Jack was charged with multiple rapes?
4: It made me sick to my stomach, and 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 this is uh, something that I did twenty four hours a day. Not to say it didn't mess up my nervous system, but this when 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 you are withheld from doing your job by the very people that can give you and your client the most. It's just a terrible, but it's a terrible. Betrayal. We could have done a lot. Mac is a crackerjack lawyer. This is all we did was indigent capital murder defense, and they held some of the strongest, not only mitigation, but, you know, there could have been some uh, exculpatory stuff in, in there that was completely denied us. It made me sick, and it made me also see how weak and stupid and evil people can be. It was, it, it sickened me, but that's, it, it, that comes with the turf.
0: And it had to be shocking for the family, too, because you have Janice and Bonnie who lost their sister and their brother, and then they find out that this has been going on, and Heath had been raped for years and mind-controlled by someone that Barbara and Joe had trusted so deeply. It had to have also been hard for Janice in particular finding out that
1: her mom, Annie Mae, did have a little bit of knowledge of what was happening and finding out that her mom kept it from her and from law enforcement.
0: Were you surprised when the allegations came out against him?
5: Against Jack Mm -hmm. when all the boys came forward? Well... You know, it just seemed like it opened that Pandora's box. All those boys started coming forward. It was shocking to the whole community. I was surprised. And like I said, Heath did not say a word until he realized they were all coming forward. I mean, I really believe he had those boys scared. So after then the charges on Jack came out, did it make you think about that
0: night or Heath's sentencing done any differently?
5: Well, yeah, uh, you know, hindsight, I'm like, you know, he was everywhere. Good night. They let him spend the night, that first night at the residence to secure the crime scene. God only knows what he was doing. And then, you know, the church, you know, where they were gathering information that Mr. Thompson, he was there. He was at the visits at the county jail. I mean, hindsight, yeah, he was everywhere. And he, and I think he did go over to the stocks if I recall. And like I said, I can remember them saying that Heath uh, kept trying to, somebody said, the girl said that Heath was calling their house collect from the jail. So, yeah, I mean, hindsight, there were, yeah, it it was um, sickening, actually.
1: Another person who probably had a pretty strong reaction to finding out the news about Jack was Doug Hogan. I'm sure he had a lot of those what-if thoughts, too. What if somebody would have listened to me? What if the whole town wasn't against me? All of this could have been avoided or ended years before. I'm sure it was validating for him,
0: but also frustrating.
1: Absolutely, because then he gets the chance to have people realize that he isn't a liar, that he wasn't making it up.
2: It was a little nerve-wracking because I didn't know who Betty Dickey was but I knew who Betty Dickey was connected to, and now you're back into politics. And the more this case was tried from a political standpoint, the more apt Jack was to be acquitted. And I didn't trust her until I started seeing the charges come. And when she filed two counts of solicitation to commit murder, I thought, well, we've got someone who's seeking justice. I still have mixed emotions about Betty Dickey. I But I have mixed emotions about everyone in this case. So I'm outside looking in because I was not allowed to be any of those charges.
0: How did you feel and how did that play out when you found out that because of the plea deal that they were going to drop those charges?
2: I probably owe Betty Dickey an apology for the words that I use. And I'm pretty sure my dad told me to sit down and shut up and hear her out. I probably used some very not nice words because I felt like Jack was getting away with one more thing.
0: Did you think he was going to go away for good this time or did you think that that was still going to be in question?
2: I think I felt at the time he was in too deep that there was still maybe a 20-25% chance that he would be acquitted, that he would pull some miraculous rabbit out of a hat and get away felt 75% compelled that because the Knox and the Oxes and other boys had come out, it wasn't one. It was multiple boys standing united. We got a chance. Now, I also, at the same time, worried that some of these boys' testimony might not stand up because they had aligned themselves with Jack so heavily in my trial that I was truly worried because I knew enough about the legal system at this time. I'd grown up in a courtroom by this point. Hey, you've committed perjury in one courtroom or the other. Which one?
0: While he felt validated that everyone had come forward, that the boys were starting to come forward, these guys, and telling what had happened to them. And now everyone else knew that he was telling the truth. It probably had to be a little frustrating, too, because no one came out and said at that time, hey, we weren't truthful on the stand. We weren't truthful about what happened in, in the Hogan case. While everyone knew that the boys hadn't been truthful in the case, there wasn't a lot of that closure, I think, that maybe Doug needed. I'm sure there was a lot of questioning in his mind
1: as well as far as why they didn't come forward back then. Why did they decide to defend Jack in his trial, but they're coming forward now. And I think a lot of that is probably, they weren't ready. They were years younger and in the thick of their abuse by Jack. By this time, they're older. Some of them aren't being abused anymore. Some of them, like Heath and Wade, are much older, but still under Jack's control
0: And you have what Rob Evett told us in the last episode. He had Jack having him research how to burn down a house. So it really factors in, I think, when you look at why the other boys didn't say, hey, Doug's right, it's happening to me too, because there was such a violent side of Jack that no one knew about. So when Heath first went to prison, that had to be shocking because you have someone who has never been in trouble before other than getting pulled over like Keith Anthony had said they had a little too much to drink and hot springs and he had a DUI so nothing that really amounts to anything jail time wise let alone prison and then he's 20 years old and he goes into prison for the very first time I can't imagine what that was like I'm sure there were so many different feelings and thoughts,
1: intimidated and scared, for sure, but also in survival
0: mode. For sure. And he had to not just survive, but to learn how that whole new world worked. They have their own way of life in there. They have jobs. They have their own communities. They have their own rules. And... Coming in from the outside, you're 20, you don't know any of that stuff. And then you learn that entire new way of life. And it's not like anyone's there with a welcome book when you walk in the door. You have to learn how to interact with the
1: guards and the
0: prisoners.
1: And there's a hierarchy. You have to find out who's in charge,
0: who's at the top, where do I fit in, what's going to be my role here. What you can and can't say, what you can and can't do. He's told stories about being jumped when he first went and got his commissary stuff because he was able to go get some food and snacks. Then he gets beaten up and it gets taken away from him. So we've gone through his life and what he's been through with Jack and his family. And then he goes to college and has his girlfriend, Kelly. And all of a sudden now he's thrown into this new way of life that he's got to figure out really fast.
6: If you were a first time offender under 21, you had to go to honor. If you were above 21 as a first time offender, you went to Cummins. So when I went there, yeah, I can remember the first day walking in and, you know, um, guys walking by beating on the window and telling this different people in the room you said, You're going to be my boy. You're going to be my boy. You're going to be my bitch. And me thinking, Wow, <laughs> wow, what have I walked into? And then, to leave this orientation gathering where this officer's passing out the stuff and telling us, you know, don't do this, don't do that. Then get put into a barracks and you see all this. I was at Roller for approximately two weeks and I was in an intake barracks for probably three or four days before moving to a host club barracks. And then from the moment I went into the host club barracks until I got shipped to Cummins, I fought and had boots and batteries thrown at me at night when I was trying to sleep. Because I was one of two white guys in a barracks at the time. And, uh, you know, the whole dominant game that went on back then was that they would beat you up and lobby you, and beat you up and lobby you, and beat you up and lobby beat you up and lobby until you either called out or you got a man that protected you and pin you and everything else. So you either fall or you fucked. And so I fought and fought, and I didn't get much sleep. And there were, I can remember one time I overslept. I was supposed to go to work the next day, but because I'd had shit thrown at me all night and the fights I'd been in, I overslept. And so the whole squad riders came in the building to look for the people who didn't come to work. Here I am, passed out asleep. sleep. So the officer walks over and squirts me in the face with pepper spray. That's how he woke me up. So after the fights and all this, i wake up, I can't see, I can't breathe, and i laughing. And uh, him talking about, well, if you weren't sucking dick all night, you'd be able to get up and go to work. And this is an officer. So I can remember calling my grandma Dorothy on the phone. And and I was desperate because I knew it had reached a point where I was going to have to do something because I was tired of being beat up. I went to the commissary one time. I'd been robbed, lost everything. So when I came to the commissary, before I could even get to my rack, I got jumped on by about 10 or 15 people so I told her I said you know I said I am so sorry for everything that's happened and I said I'm in a situation right now where you know I'm fighting all the time because I refuse to be victimized and I'm not going to be somebody's boy I said and I need your help if you can would you please try to help me get moved somewhere I said because Otherwise I'm going to have to get a weapon and I'm going to have to be violent in a way that I don't want to be. And I was desperate, you know, and I can not remember praying and asking God, I said, God, please help me. I said, because I don't want to have to do something to be left alone. And I said, and this is the way I felt. I felt this sense of helplessness that um, I hadn't felt in a while, but it was something that, you know, I knew and recognized. And so you know, my grandmother actually ended up calling Delia Fletcher, who was the uh, representative for Loma at the time. The same one who went and testified at the trial in Carlisle for Doug Hogan. He was a character witness. So she asked him and, uh, you know, he told her, he said, you know, I, I hope you, this council, don't ever call me and ask me to do anything for him again. So they came and got me out of the field and told me to go to the building and pack my stuff. So I actually had to have an officer have another inmate brought in who was a, a Hispanic guy because I had taken my Bible and my pictures, stuff like that, and i given to him because I'd lost everything else that I had from fighting and being robbed. So they called him in. They got my pictures and stuff, and uh, they put me on a, on a bus and took me across the field to Cummins. When they brought me in, um, they took me in, and uh, I went from open barracks with 60 people to... When they brought me in, they, they had the, the classification officer, uh, waiting on me and I never forgive me. And, a uh, white gentleman They called me in his office and he said, uh, you know, he was very pissed, angry. He said, they, you know, they wanted me to stay after hours so I could talk to you. And I want to know who it was your folks called to get you moved over here. He said, cause I know you think it was bad where you were. He said, you just wait over here and let about five or six of these on you and beat you down and fucking your ass and you wish you were back over there with the kids. And <laughs> looking, yeah, I remember looking at the guy and I said, well, you know what? I said, I guess I'm just going to have you either live or die because I'm not going through that. And, of course, he stood up and he said, oh, you got a chip on your shoulder, huh? You think you're a tough guy? Well, I got a place for tough guys. And so, that's where I was introduced to administrative segregation. And it was two man cages, um, three tiers, 45 cells and uh, two man cells. So, you know, you didn't know who you were gonna put in the cell. So they took me down there, they put me in a cell. Um, of course there was no air conditioning back then. Uh, the air conditioning was out. So hot, you went to bed sweating, you woke up sweating. And um, bathed in the sink, try to cool off or sit on the still still toilet flush if you're trying to cool down.
1: And he constantly has to have, you know, one eye open, looking over his shoulder because he has been violated his entire life. And we've all heard the stories. We know that stuff like that happens in prison as well. And so he has people approaching him because he's the new guy trying to make him their boy, as they say, in prison. And that's something that
0: Heath is not going to let happen. He never let it happen again. He never let himself be violated again. And he would talk about going out to see his family on visits even and have bruises and be beaten up. And he would get in fights, but he wasn't ever going to let another man violate him like Jack did ever again. Something else Heath has talked about is how it was when he was in prison. He had been there a few months and the news broke about Jack. They have TVs in prison. The inmates sit around and watch TV together. They talk about things. And all of a sudden you have the breaking news that Jack Wallace has been arrested for multiple counts of rape against minors And Heath has to deal with then now all these inmates knowing that he was one of Jack's victims.
6: That was the new norm that I lived in. So there was this constant back and forth trying to adjust to this new norm. And it seemed surreal at times. And all I could think about was, you know, every day (laughs) they turned on the news and everybody watches the news. And when all this happened about Jack, it was on the news. And I'll never forget what it was like to be called Boy Scout when my picture, my name started coming up, and the comments that were made about I'd make somebody a good boy that I'd already been trained upright to need a good man. It had a very similar mentality that a lot of people at the time had in the streets, and that is for a boy to have gone through continued abuse for a long period of time severely he must have enjoyed it otherwise why didn't you stop it why didn't he fight wouldn't you do so with that in mind hey you know what i mean this this is uh this is the perfect place you know what i mean all these people all these people were looking for a sexual object to release their frustrations and satisfactions and you know, to pimp out to other people. All these people are using each other to try to meet you know, basic needs. And, um, yeah, I mean, I saw people get pimped out for drugs. I saw people get huge. They got, you know, and it was, uh, there, was there were times when I was forced to situations to either fight or submit to the kind of abuse that I grew up doing, and there was no way I was going to allow that to continue. And, um, you know, there was times I went out on visit with black eyes and bruises and try to protect my family from that. I didn't want them worried about me, but it's a violent place. So I go out on visit, and they'd ask me these questions. I'd ask about prison and what it was like, and, you know, it was hard to put on the shell. You know, I've been doing it for my whole entire life to be able to try to put on this mask of, well, I'm okay. It's going to be all right. And, you know, and so trying to do that in prison too. And um, it was hard.
1: So he's continually having to fight and protect himself and prove, basically, that he's not going to be taken advantage of, that they're not going to be able to do that to
0: him. That's one thing he said is around that time when people would say stuff to him, he would just look at him and kind of smile and he would put on that persona of a family killer, a psycho, because they left him alone.
6: The first time that they actually asked me anything about Jack, they had a state police person called out of the prison to talk to me about it. And so here I am I get pulled up front. I'm sitting in the office. This officer is sitting there watching everything they I say. And so it's not a safe place. It's not the easiest thing for me to do is say, I don't know what we're talking about. Nothing happened to me. And so I go back. And you know, I didn't want to talk to him. Life was hard enough. Did not want my ten years of being sexually victimized and broken down and to be broadcast on T V it was the worst thing that I could imagine happening to me because as much as I hated what happened, they left me alone because they thought I was some crazy killer in prison. And that was the reality of it. I stayed quiet. I stayed myself. And people thought that if I was in prison for killing my family, that I probably wouldn't hesitate in doing something to them. And it kept people away. But in reality, I was scared to death. I'd never been in trouble in my whole life. And, um, you know, that was, that was hard.
1: So on top of the news rolling constantly on the prison TVs, Jack starts talking to people there and offering money to inmates who would silence Heath. He ends up offering $5,000 to anybody who is willing to
0: kill Heath in prison. And that's very peculiar, too to offer money to anyone that would kill Heath in prison because why would he want Heath killed? Why would it matter at this point? He pled no contest to raping Heath. Heath should be an afterthought for Jack because he's locked away now for the rest of his life. Heath has nothing to do with Jack. So why is he so worried about getting rid of
1: Heath still? And one thing I want to mention, because I always find it so interesting, is just remembering the proximity in terms of the timeline of how close we are to Heath going to prison. It wasn't that long ago that Jack was visiting Heath in prison, telling him that he's going to help him out of this. And now Jack, just a short time later, is in prison as well
0: and offering money to end Heath's life. It's interesting you bring that point up because when you said that, it made me think about how when Jack did visit Heath in prison— he reminded him that Heath still had living family members on the outside, so he needed to be careful what he said.
6: I did not want to talk about Jack. In fact, when they first tried to interview me, I denied that anything happened. And part of that was for multiple reasons uh, one, me trying to stop it me trying to dispose him is what caused the events that led me to come to prison in the first place. I remember Jack, when he came to send me in jail, one of the things that he told me was that I need to think about the people that were still alive out there. I think it was a reminder that they were out there and that I need to be mindful of the fact that what I told mom and Heather got him killed and that I still had family out there that things could happen to him. That is what I felt he was telling me. And I believe that because one of the things that, you know, he said that and he said at other times was you caused this. You did that. You did this. And you know, that reinforcing of this would not have happened if you had done what you were supposed to do and that is keep your mouth shut.
1: At this point, Jack is already in prison. All of these different victims, not just Heath, have come forward and spoken out against him. So there must be something else that Jack is nervous about
0: Heath exposing. Because why else would he want to silence him like that? I mean, if you're in prison, I would think $5,000 is a lot of money. And if you're just going to put a hit at, on someone and pay them $5,000 to get rid of them... I would assume it's a pretty important reason why you'd want to do that. Heath has something much bigger over Jack. And the different inmates that Jack talks to have told interesting stories. And what it really boils down to is it seems like there were two separate groups of people. Ones who were totally okay with pedophiles and ones that were not. And the ones that were totally okay with it were in there for the same reason— And they were the ones that Jack told the stories to of how he got these different boys, what he did with them, and tried to impress them with his own horrific stories of abusing these children. And then you have the other group that he would talk to, and he would say, they seduced me. These young boys seduced me, and what else could I do? It just makes me so sick
1: to my stomach on both hands because, number one, you've got a group of pedophiles in prison exchanging stories of their conquests. And then on the other hand, you have Jack blaming the boys, the victims, for what he did to them, saying they were just a bunch of homosexual little boys that came onto me. I didn't have a
0: choice. And we have these letters from one of the prisoners that actually talked to Jack up And this guy had also been in prison for the same charges. He has since passed away. He talked about conversations that he had with Jack and where Jack would say that he filled a need for these boys these boys were going through puberty going through life changes and he was there just to fill that need he also told him about what he had done to wade and how he had crawled through his bedroom window and he was even his nephew but he was just there to help him out in a time of need and when he's asked then who were some of his favorites heath's name came right to the top of the list with jack And that's just it. You can just tell that Jack, he doesn't
1: think that there's anything wrong with what he's done. He doesn't have any remorse or regret or any accountability for what he's done
0: to all of these boys or for all of the lives that he has ruined. We actually have an affidavit that was also provided, and we will be sharing the affidavit fully in a future episode. But for now, we did want to mention just A couple parts. One is Jack says when talking about what he was charged with, he said it was not until Josh Aukes choosing to tell of our previous involvement rather than have him give up his dope pusher when he was caught that our relationship was exposed. During a state police investigation, it was never said that I ever said anything to Heath Stocks in a suggestive manner. He also goes on to say that Heath was a willing participant in two voluntary sexual experiences over a single weekend when he was 15 years old, never before or never after. They were never caught in bed together, ever, because it didn't happen. Our friendship continued until months after he was imprisoned in the ADC. And Jack signed and dated this affidavit, and it is
1: just blatantly obvious, like I said, that he has no remorse he doesn't see anything wrong with what he's done. He's calling it a relationship with Josh Aucus and consensual with Heath, saying that he was a willing participant, all the while mentioning that Heath was 15 years old, which would make Jack in his mid-40s.
0: And you can't have consensual sex with someone that's 15 years old. So he still, in his mind, thinks that everything he did was okay. That is a messed up mind. Absolutely. Because he's putting this in writing
1: like this somehow explains it all. Like somebody's going to read this and say, you're right, Jack.
0: What were we thinking? And it's notarized. I don't think it's going to make anyone think what Jack hoped it did. No. Because all it does is just show... The level of evil that courses through that man's mind.
1: It just confirms all of our thoughts about him, for sure, and solidifies that he's exactly where he needs to be and that he never needs to get out.
0: I had never heard the term "host Squad until talking to Heath. I had seen it in the movies, but I didn't know what the name was, and I didn't know that it was really a thing that still went on. I had heard of it referred to as a chain gang. But yeah, like you said, never a hoe squad.
1: And I definitely thought that that was something that wasn't practiced in the prison system anymore.
6: Monday through Friday, we got up, we got called out, and we went out there, took holes, and we got lines, and we chopped uh, grass out of ditches. For the first five, six months, uh, they did everything they could to make me quit, because of the game they played. All these guys on Hull Squad, the new guys, they, and they would try to make them quit. And what they mean by that is they would get in lines, and you know, all these slave movies where you see guys with the holes, and they're all singing a song, hoeing at the same time. And so they would do this and they'd work and they'd be harder and faster. And You know, this whole, hey boss, somebody's leaving his grass over here. That was the kind of thing that I was dealing with. And so I didn't say anything. I worked out. I went out there and worked. And I worked to work till I had blisters and they busted and I had blood running down my hands. But I wouldn't quit. And after a while, they quit trying no, to make me quit. But every time somebody new came out there especially somebody that was white and young. They always put them in the middle of the line, which is where most of the work was. And I always tried to help because I hated seeing people trying to bully somebody else, taking advantage of somebody else, treat them poorly, and try to break them down. This whole building up, breaking down process, you know, it was familiar to me. You know what I mean? I can remember how my dad was. I remember how Jack was. And now I'm in prison. These people are trying to break me. They're trying to break me so they can use me.
0: And when you hear him talk about it and describe it, you can picture it and you can picture the guard on the horse and you can picture the bloody hands and the heat and the working. And which, again, if you hadn't ever been in prison before, you weren't used to that lifestyle. You didn't know what to expect. You had just come from college and now you're working on a chain gang.
1: And having to prove yourself to not only the guards, but also other inmates because you're
0: the new guy. They want to see what you're made out of, how tough you are. And I think it's important to mention here, too, that there are only four states in the entire country that allow free inmate labor. So these guys are working on a chain gang and they don't make any money. They have to pay for their commissary. They have to pay for the things that they get. But they're not getting paid for any of the work they do. They're just doing it because it's required. The only states that currently allow this are Texas, Georgia, Alabama, and Arkansas. So while Heath was dealing with learning his new way of life in prison, how to adapt, how to adjust... He's also still working through talking to the people on the outside that knew him, that still want to visit him. And to be honest, there aren't a lot of people that are coming to see him at this point. He's got his family, a few friends. Kelly's still coming to see him at this point. But it's interesting, too, because he's heard that Wade is really wanting to come visit him. And this is before Wade has taken his life. But Wade really wants to see Heath and talk to him. But his family won't allow it. However, three different people come to
1: visit Heath on three different occasions, and they're looking for answers.
6: Wade Wade ended up taking his own life because of it. He could not handle the things, the pressures that he was under. It was hard. It was very hard because even after everything that came out about Jack, us going to court, us talking, Wade was struggling deeply. And uh, when I was at Cummins, Wade was trying to come see me. And, you know, my grandmother and them had told me that, you know, Wade had expressed and her come down and visit me in prison. He wanted to talk to me. And, you know, they asked me why. And I said, well, you know, let, you know let's let try to get on the visitation list. And let's, and they, you know, his family didn't want him to come see me. And then I had uh, his grandma, Ozabelle Knox. She came to see me first. And she came down with Dorothy. And it wasn't about how I was. It wasn't about anything but... Wade. And the question was, so the questions centered around, did I know any secrets or anything that Wade might be dealing with that would be driving him the point of losing his mind or taking his life? And, and I said to her, I said, well, I would feel more comfortable if you would help Wade get on the visitation list so I can talk to Wade. And so Miss Elizabeth left and she never came back. And then I had Charlie Knox on my visitation list, and he came down with Dorothy, and it wasn't about me, it wasn't about how I was doing, it was about Wade. Do you know any secrets or anything that Wade might be keeping from us that would push him to the point of taking his own life or being suicidal and losing his mind? And I said, well, you know, it's been expressed that, you know, Wade's going to come see me, you know, same day over. you know, let him come down here, let me talk to him. And of course, Charlie never came back. And then after that, already half paranoid about everything that's going on. Here's Jack doing what he's doing in prison. Here I am. We um, went through all this stuff, Jack's in prison and me trying to answer questions with the family, me trying to turn back to you know, life in prison, adjusting, adapting, doing prison interviews with you know trying to share my story in a way, express it in a way, bring things more and more life because the only therapy I was getting was doing TV interviews. I mean, that's the reality of it. The only time people asked me questions and allowed me to get and talk about my story was for entertainment purposes. Put them to put a story on TV. That's the only people that were asking me questions, why? And lastly, I had wage childhood psychologists come to see me. at come as too. And so now I'm really tweaked and really looking sideways. And Catherine, something, I can't remember her full name. She went and testified at Jack's hearing, uh, sentencing hearing, She'd been treating Wade for years. She expressed to me that Wade had expressed a desire to see me, but she did not feel that I was in his best interest. But she wanted my help. And she said that, you know, she'd been treating Wade since he was five years old. And so in my mind, I'm like, you're asking me, who's in prison, to help you help him. And you've already been treating you for 15 years. What What is it you think that? And then out of her mouth comes the very same question that came out of Ozabell's voice. Do you know of any secrets or anything that Wade would be hiding that would be driving him to a point of suicide? And I said, well, if you'll allow him to come down here and see me and talk to me and have a chance, then I have no problem talking about those things. And she never came back. When I refused to just talk to them about Wade without him being present, or to know what was going on they all complete interest and they never
1: came back. Wade's dad, Charlie Knox, his grandma, Ozabelle, and his childhood therapist all come to see Heath and they all say the same things. Wade wants to come see you, he's been struggling, his mental health is declining. What do you know? Why does Wade want to come see you? And what secrets could
0: Wade be hiding that are weighing on him so much? And when they ask him this, Heath tells them, let me talk to Wade. Let Wade come visit me. Please let him come see me. I'll talk to him, and then I'll answer your questions. And each one of them left, never to return. And Heath never heard any more from them. One of the most interesting visitors, I think, that came to see Heath after everything that came out about Jack is Cletus Hogan. I feel
1: the same way, because... We've heard so much about Cletus, and every single thing that we've heard describes him as such a good man. It was almost heartwarming to find out that Cletus had decided to go see Heath after finding out everything about Jack and finding out
0: that Heath was one of Jack's victims. I try to put myself in Cletus's shoes and what must have been going through his head because this group of boys terrorized him and his family. They were talking about killing him. And then he finds this out. And so he talks to Doug and says, I want to go visit Heath. And he did. What was your dad like? My
2: dad was very. Oh, gosh, I was not expecting that question. A very kind man, a very hardworking man. My dad could be a gruff man. I think he had the best of intentions at everything that he did. He was never out to hurt anyone. He was always there to help, to inspire, to lift people up, because he wanted to help not only us boys, but everyone around him.
0: What did your dad think about Heath? Did he ever visit him that you know of?
2: Yes, he did. My dad absolutely went to see Heath. My dad felt sorry for Heath. Heath. took the rap for Jack.
0: How did that come about? Do you remember?
2: No, I don't. I remember my dad asking me how I feel if he went to visit Heath. And I told him I was fine with it because I felt like Heath was a victim. Now, Heath was a victim of Jack, and I feel sorry for Heath for that. Heath is also guilty of murder. Heath has self-admitted he killed his father.
0: When your dad went to visit Heath... And he told you about that and asked you if it would bother you. Did he talk to you about any of his visits or after you went to see him or how did that go?
2: I always ask dad how Heath was doing. And he always told me because I didn't always know where he was going. But he would call me and say, hey, I saw Heath. This is, you know, what's going on. And I've lost that line of communication of hearing from the rumor mill or other people because a lot of the people that went to visit Heath have passed away. So... I don't hear as much about Heath's life in prison anymore, and I feel guilty about that. I feel like I should have checked on him more. I feel like I should go visit him. He has sent me a letter or two and has sent me messages through other people, and I have sent messages back through them. I've let my own life get in the way, and I'm busy, and I think that should be an example of I have serious compassion for Heath, but I also have my own life. And why was Jack so involved should speak volumes as to there was a motive behind his actions. My dad went, I think, because he truly felt sorry for Heath. You got to remember, Heath was the enemy for four years. My dad had every reason to hate Heath. And so do I. Heath was against me. But when you find out the abuse that he went through, not from his father, but from Jack, the man that was claiming to protect him, there's no way Heath would be where he is today if Jack Walls never existed.
0: He probably had to dig deep for that, to go in and see Heath. But he also had that understanding, which I think really shows what kind of a person Cletus Hogan was. He was the kind of person that's going to stand up for his own
1: and defend and protect his child. But at the same time, finding that out about Heath, I think he was able to take a step back and see Heath as a child in the situation, too, and see Jack for what he is, which Cletus and Doug already knew. So for him to go and visit Heath in prison and talk about all of the events that had
0: occurred between them and come to an understanding and make amends. I almost feel like Cletus stepped into that father role that nobody could fill for Heath and I think Cletus saw that. He saw what Heath went through with Joe. He saw what Jack did to him. And as we've heard from so many people, Cletus was a good man. He didn't just go see Heath once. He visited him regularly up until he passed. And they formed a connection and a bond. And I really think that that just speaks volumes.
6: I remember Cletus from, you know, Boy Scouts and camp out. And, you know, Jack always bad-mouthed and talked about whatever. A- ass he was and how arrogant and he didn't like us. He didn't like any of the you know rebels and the scouts. He was too snooty and, you know, a square and all this all this stuff that should have been positive, but it wasn't. I don't really believe I ever suspected that Cletus would want to come this way. And Cletus wouldn't have come probably on his own, but he came down there with my grandmother, because they had been talking, you know, and you know, anything that Cletus would tell her, she would share with me. So that's the way it really started. Cletus having conversations with my grandmother. My grandmother coming to visit me and sharing. So it allowed me to see that he didn't hate me and didn't resent me for everything to happen. That he just wanted to understand and he blamed Jack. He wanted to know all the details. And of course, you know, he got on my presentation. and he came down and uh, he was... Uh, very strict, flat-top-wearing guy that I remember. But, you know, he smiled, and he sat down, and we talked. And uh, we sat out there on visit, and it was hard. You know, I get upset, and would uh, have tears. And um, he got upset at times, you know, a lot of emotion there. Very upset at Jack for, you know, the conditioning, manipulation that he put us all through, and, you know, to get to know the man the character, the integrity, all the things that Cletus possessed that Jack didn't, with the very reason why he hated the man so much. And, you know, it was very important to me to be able to discover this person outside of all of the labels and lies that Jack had created to make us distrust and see him in a certain way. I can remember just, you know, looking at him and just being in awe and, you know, of course, Cletus was, you know, he had no problems telling people what he thought. And, um, you know, some of the people who had been as character witnesses uh, for Jack and the whole uh Carlisle ordeal, you know, and Cletus, you know, when he saw the people that were character references for Jack over there, when he saw them in public, he confirmed them. And he told them. He said, how do you feel about, you know, going and defending this character now? Now the truth's come out. How do you feel about that now? And, of course, they get mad. You know, they'd be upset because he was confronting them. He was exposing them. And well, I admired Mr. Cletus for that. And for me, I learned more from getting copies of all the paperwork from Cletus. His and for, for the deposition of Jack and the history of everything that I learned anywhere else, Mr. Cletus offered me a window into the truth of how many people were involved in the cover-ups and how many people were involved in conflicts of interest and were willing to suppress the terrible truth of Jack and Kits for their own personal benefit or political benefit. And up until the very end, he said, tell me how a man can be investigated and reported on a state level and someone go against state law and get a copy of the very investigation against him. Because when DHS released a copy of the investigation against Jack Walls, it was signed out as Walls. So you either had the abuser himself go up there to DHS and get a copy of it, or you had Jack's father go up there and get a copy of it. And Cletus said, who do you think had the power to go up there and walk in there and get a copy of it? He said it wasn't Jack Walls. And then to read afterward the comments because, you know, the, the media asked the spokesperson for DHS, how does this happen? How does a person who's being investigated get a copy? And he didn't know because it was against state law. It showed that they were above some laws or they were enabled to be above some laws. And, you know, that was, that was a message that I really appreciated with Chris because he said, you know, it doesn't matter how powerful they are. It doesn't matter how many people they know. He said, I'm not going to stop talking. He said, as long as I've got breath, he said, I'm going to try to help you, and I'm going to come see you, and I'm going to support you, because I know you wouldn't be here if it weren't for Jack Walls.' And, you know, to have that kind of impassioned support by someone, your abuser tried to manipulate you into killing, was so humbling because to hear the, the horrible things that Jack said about this man and know the horrible things that Jack had done to us. And all this man had tried to do was end it and try to protect his own. And he was made an outcast. You know, maybe that was part of the deeper connection there. That here I was, an outcast, blown up, like he had been an outcast for and Jack. Maybe that we were united in that. It was very important to me, as I had done with my own family, who were the victims and who kept coming to see me, uh, to be able to talk about everything that happened and to share what I thought, what I was going through, and then to apologize and say, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry because of what I did and why I did it and the things that I believed. And I said, you know, I was a kid and we were conditioned in horrible, horrible ways to believe things about ourselves and other people in the world that were all belong. We had this map of reality that was so foreign that it didn't even belong in the world that we live in. And it is so hard to overcome that kind of manipulation and conditioning to get to a place where you can see other people and the pain those things have caused them. And, you know, it was important. It was important that I let myself bear and say, I'm sorry that I was so stupid, that I was so broken that I was so lost that I couldn't stand up. I couldn't stop it. I couldn't stand against it. And because the pain and the that he put us through when we said no were so painful, mentally that it was easier to do the horrible thing that he forced us to do, you know? Clay, this is a man of character of, of belief in God and grace and forgiveness. And I can remember him telling me that he didn't blame me and that he forgave me and that he loved me. And he gave me a hug. And unfortunately, it wasn't long after that, that he got sick and he ended up having a stroke. And I didn't get to see him anymore. But he always sent messages to my grandmother and she always conveyed his feelings. And I uh, I miss him. I miss him and I miss uh, a lot of people that were so central to be finding myself and them helping me to save myself From all of that, because a lot of people passed on.
1: In the next episode, we will continue discussing Heath's life in prison. We will talk to some of the people who have been instrumental in his journey towards healing and have helped him find the courage to talk about what he remembers from the night of the murders.
0: Life without the untold story of Heath Stocks is brought to you by Watts Productions and Block Party. Produced by Dylan Edward Allen, Colby Watts, and Katie Anthony. Archival materials provided by the Stocks family, the Harris family, Samantha Jones, and the Freedom of Information Act. Music by Colin Thomas. All information in this podcast is based on interviews from people close to the case, never before seen insider documents, legal documents, FOIA documents, victim impact statements, and sworn affidavits. All parties mentioned in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty. For more information on this podcast and Heath Stocks, visit heathstockspodcast.com. For more information about the groundbreaking Scouts film, which features Heath Stocks, visit scoutsdocumentary.com.